We are continuing on in our series through Philippians. And I wonder, you know, that Paul is writing to a local church here. And as he's writing to this local church, I wonder if you think or maybe have thought that the ministry inside of the local church today has sort of lost its supernatural quality. You know, like we read about in the Bible, right? If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, in the New Testament church, we find all these healings, we find tongues, we find mass evangelism where people are coming to the faith in Christ by the throngs. And yet, when we are here, sometimes it doesn't seem like that supernatural element is happening, right? I don't know if you have ever felt that way. On the outside, the church appears to be just like any other group. It's sort of an interest group where they just get together and our interest just happens to be Jesus. It just sort of appears that way sometimes, doesn't it? Well, what if I told you that one of the greatest evidences for the supernatural happens here almost every week? Happens in the life of this church virtually every single week. If only we had eyes to see it and pursue it for the glory of God. Well, that's what we're going to consider this morning. That's why I've entitled this sermon, Growing for Glory. We're going to see that. We are going to see Paul praying for love to abound, to grow in the Philippian church such that it results in actions that make no sense unless God has birthed it in them. That's what we're going to see. Actions that I would argue that get to the heart of God more than any other miracle or supernatural event. And so we're going to take a look there at Philippians chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. Let me set it up for us. This letter, as we have seen, is a letter to a local church there in Philippi. It's the first church that started on the European soil. It was started by a guy by the name of Paul, who with a few others went and preached the gospel and even suffered in order to see that church brought about. It was started by the Lord. A handful of people came together after having been born again. Paul, years later now, writing from prison, loves this church so much. And he's encouraging them by writing this letter because I think it seems as though he's concerned that there is some pride and arrogance that may be creeping up in the life of the church in order to disunify them in the fellowship they have in Christ. And so that's why he's writing, to stave off any rivals for unity as they enjoy them in Christ. And so where we're going to pick up here is the final section of the initial greeting of the thanksgiving there. So it tips us off, by the way, to the themes that we're going to see throughout the rest of the letter. So let me read, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll look into it. Philippians chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. For God is my witness... How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so, God, that's why we exist, for your praise and your glory. We agree with this prayer and prayer that, and pray even that this sermon would cause your love in us and for one another to abound more and more. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to uh, note first off, draw your attention to the affections of love first off in this passage. The affections of love. In particular, the affections of love in the fellowship of the gospel, namely the church. So Paul has rehearsed his deep affections for this church over and over again, hasn't he? We've been seeing that. Right, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. 
Verse 4, making my prayer with joy. Verse 7, I hold you in my heart because you are partakers in the gospel with me. And then here, verse 8, God is my witness. Big witness, right? I mean, can you imagine a bigger witness? God is my witness. How I yearn, the word there is crave for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. How I crave for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, note there the corporate nature of Paul's words. Do you see that? This is not a letter that Paul wrote to a handful of his buddies in Grace Church Philippi. He's not writing it just to his community group that he attended while he was there. Right? He is writing it to the entire church. To all of the church. The you all there. Paul is affectionate toward the church. The collection of individuals that constitute the church. Grace Church Philippi. He cares for them so deeply that he craves for them all in all the affection of Christ Jesus. And affection there means compassion or tenderness, compassion or tenderness of Christ. And I wonder if you've ever felt that way. If you're a Christian, have you ever felt that way to another congregation? Have you ever felt like this? Verse 8, affectionate, tender love and uh, just sort of mercies and desire, craving for another church. You ever felt that way for another church? Well, I can tell you that Restoration Church, that it is a great joy to feel this way towards you oftentimes. So I can tell you that the handful of times my wife and I will miss services on Sunday, we often miss meeting with you. I know that I can speak on behalf of the elders when I say to you, Restoration Church, that verse 8 is what we feel about you. What a joy it is to crave and yearn with the affection of Christ uh, because of the love and the fellowship that we enjoy here. But I I wonder, for those of you that are here this morning that have never actually sensed this, felt this, known this kind of love that Paul's talking about in verse 8, if they seem foreign to you as a Christian, if this idea of being affectionate towards, yearning for another local church of believers has never actually been a, a part of your experience as a Christian, well then I want to beg you and encourage you to listen to Paul's words here in this passage. This is what is understood to be not exceptional in the Christian life, I think Paul would have us to understand that this is what is normal in the Christian life. This is to be common, yearning for congregations uh, because of their love for Jesus and the love that we share. So we who are in Christ, we are to enjoy the fellowship of the church of Christ in a way that's deep and is meaningful and abiding, just as our fellowship with Christ is supposed to be. Just as we have deep and meaningful fellowship with Him, we ought to have deep and meaningful fellowship with one another, those of us that are in Christ. And so the fellowship of the church is to carry with it this affectionate love that is more meaningful even of other relationships. And so it should be more common than it is uh, oftentimes in the life of Christians today to have this affectionate joy in the fellowship of the saints. And if you are here and you've are, you are skeptical about the Christian faith because you've never actually seen this kind of love, well, let me encourage you, pay attention again to these words and ask the Lord to reveal them to you as we walk through this. And we've been reading about what Paul has been praying for this church, right? Back up in verses 3 to 5. We've been reading about how he's been praying for them, right? How he's thankful, how he's joyful for them. But here in this passage, verses 9 to 11, we actually see what he prays. So we know that he has been praying, but now we find what he's praying. And what we see Paul praying for them instructs us about the affections of love that should be had in the fellowship of a church, So Paul here, we find, is interceding. He is pleading on behalf of Grace Church Philippi for one thing 
One thing with two qualifications in order that a particular lifestyle would result for the praise and glory of God. There's the whole sermon. All right? If you tune out for the rest of the way, just listen to that sentence. All right? So he's, Paul is praying, he's pleading on behalf of this local church for one thing, love to abound, with two qualifications, uh, knowledge and all discernment, in order that a particular lifestyle would result to the praise and glory of God. So this lifestyle that he's praying would result, would display, would manifest what they already enjoy, the grace of God. A lifestyle that would indicate the gospel is at work in their souls. Paul prays that the affections of gospel love would result in actions of gospel love. And in so doing, they would then fulfill the purpose of their existence, our existence, to live for the praise and the glory of God. So in other words, Paul's prayer, friends, is a means to the end, which is the glory and praise of God. And so that's why, again, I've titled this sermon, Growing for Glory. But this growth for glory, friends, is contingent upon our understanding the affections of love in the gospel. So with the affection or compassion or tenderness of Christ, Paul prays that the church would see their love abound more and more. You see that in verse 9. Paul is praying, and we should be praying, Restoration Church, that the present love of the church would abound, would increase, would grow. See, Paul's concern is that rivalries, the rivalries that may be existing in the church, could indicate that the gas of the gospel is kind of low in the corvette which is Grace Church Philippi. And so he's praying to the filling station, which is God Almighty, that he might fill it up. That's what he's doing. Now I need to pause here for a moment and help us understand something that is going on in the text that is difficult for our English eyes to understand. We don't see it, unfortunately. It is a travesty, friends. It is a travesty of the highest order that the English language only has one word for love. I'm not kidding. It is a travesty of the highest order, which I think one reason why God did not inspire the Bible in the English language, that's probably one reason why. But thankfully, in his wisdom and his, 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 just his wonderful wisdom, he knew to inspire God's written word in a language that would more specifically describe the love that he wants us to understand and to know and to enjoy. The love that is being requested in this passage, in verse 9, that is being requested to fill up the church is none other than agape love. Agape love. Agape love was a distinctly Christian word in ancient times and even, I think, in our own day, if we properly un- understand it. Agape love is sacrificial. Agape love is other-oriented. It's deferential. It's primarily giving, not receiving. Agape love is not only other-oriented, it's other-oriented towards the undeserving. Agape love is even other-oriented towards the others and the other-deserving at the risk of rejection and disappointment. Friends, what we find in the Gospel, if you want to know what agape looks like, agape love looks like, just look at the cross of Christ. And there you see agape love so clearly. Where Christ lays His life down for enemies. I was thinking on my way in this morning what it was like to have nails in His hands and feet for disciples that just a few hours ago that He had invested in for so long ran away from Him. But He did it willingly. That's what love is. That's what the Bible teaches us love actually is. This word, agape love, was used in ancient times. There was that love, the word did exist, but it was a word that was not commonly used. So the Christian community would have used this word agape love 
in ways that were sort of uncharacteristic in terms of how it was going to be used in, uh, in and around the community that they lived in. And one of the reasons why the community around the church did not use this word agape love, I think, was due to the scarcity of seeing it. I don't think they saw it very much, and so they didn't use it because they weren't enjoying agape love. And so maybe the reason why agape wasn't used much was because the common person had never really seen it. They knew it was there. They knew the word was there. The idea was there. But their common experience was more correctly described by using other words for love. Words like phileo love. Maybe you've heard that word before. We're familiar with it here in America. There's a city called Philadelphia, right? That's, that word's in the Bible. Phileo love. The city of brotherly love, right? So phileo love is this idea of, it's kind of a congenial love, a brotherly love, a friendly love. It's responsive to one's care for us. But phileo love is not costly. It's not agape love. Then there's the word store for love named storhe, which simply means that's the kind of love we talk about with one another in our families. My brother, my sister, my aunt, my uncle, my cousin, your nephew, all these kinds of people, right? You can think of some, maybe some family members. You're like, I love them, you know, but it ain't easy. But because they're my uncle, I'll love them. That's storehe love. It's more natural, more natural. And then there's the word for love known as eros, where we get our word erotic. Now, this word has been largely hijacked to, return, to refer only to sexual desires. But friends, it does include that, but it does not only include that. See, eros love, erotic love, is mainly interested in what it gets out of somebody. What it receives. It's kind of a conditional love, a kind of selfish love. See, where agape love is more interested in giving, erotic love is more interested in receiving. And not only that, it wants to receive with as little cost as possible. So porn is a perfect example of this, right? So instead of courting a person, doing the hard work of serving another person, committing to the person, make a, making a commitment to them in marriage, and then seeing intimacy had there, porn, right? Porn promises you intimacy without all the work. That's why we call it erotic love. And that's why it describes this kind of affection for efficiency and a personal preference. And so once we understand this kind of love, it should come as no surprise to us, friend, that the word erotic love, that word eros, is nowhere to be found in the Bible. It's not used one time. And the reason for that, right, is because it doesn't describe the love of God. It doesn't describe the God who is said to be love. So therefore, we should not be surprised that we don't find that word being used. As opposed to agape love, the word for agape is far and away the predominant use for the word of love in the Bible. 320 uses of it in the New Testament alone. So oftentimes the common word. So when the Bible says God is love, the word there is agape. God is agape. He is sacrificial. He is servant-minded kind of love. He is other-oriented. He is more interested in giving life to the undeserving, no matter what may come. Now why am I going to all of this work to describe these words for you? Well, beloved, you must understand that words count. Words make all the difference in the world, right? Words are what we base our life upon. I mean, you just think about this. Words, great, words like grace, words like mercy, words like redemption, justification, right, sanctification. These words are what constitute our whole lives. These are the words that describe the most important realities about us. And so words count. The specificity of words count. And so here we have to understand the specificity of the love that is being prayed for. Because if we don't, we might throw the wrong understanding of love onto this passage. 
And then miss out on its weight. Miss out on its meaning. Miss out on its expectation. See friends, the affections of love in the fellowship of the saints are so deep that they are willing to personally pay a high cost for the good of others and the glory of God. And that's what Paul is praying would abound in the church at Philippi. Same thing I think he ought to be praying. We ought to be praying for ourselves. But note that there are two qualifications that are very important in his prayer. You'll note Paul wants love to abound, to increase. But you'll note there, not, with, not just any kind of love. He wants agape love to come, sacrificial love to come. Look at the text there, verse 9, with knowledge. Did you catch that? Agape love, a specific kind of love with knowledge. Paul understands that there are good, God-ordained boundaries to this love that were designed by God to allow us to flourish. The same way that guardrails are on top of the Empire State Building. We do not say that's getting in the way. No, those guardrails are for our joy to enjoy the view. So in the same way, knowledge, truth guides us in order to enjoy. Knowledge, friends, involves the intellect. Which is why that word affection is so important for us to understand. In verse 8, see, affections are not merely emotions. They are emotions that are informed by knowledge. That's what we find there. Paul wants agopic love to fill up the church with knowledge. And the knowledge that he's referencing is the knowledge of God's Word. God's Word. See, the words that Jesus prayed in John 17 would sanctify us. Sanctify us. The word, the knowledge that Paul later wrote to his companion Timothy that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The knowledge he's praying for here that would go in accordance with love is the knowledge that we find in the Bible. See, Paul prays that their love would be guided along and informed by the knowledge of the Bible, just as it was with Jesus. And so here, friends, it's important that we pause for a moment and consider that we live in a world that is attempting to divorce love from knowledge. We've got to be aware of that. See, our cultural moment is trying to convince us that love and truth don't fit together more so than love and feelings fit together. There are people who take the name of Christ who are tossing aside the teaching of some 2,000 years of Christians who are carried along, this, carried along by this idea of love and truth in, in favor and they're trying to, in favor, trying to wed again this idea of love and feelings to the void of knowledge, to the void of truth. And this we must remember, friends, the truth, love that is equipped with the truth is the pathway to love and life and truth, right? It's, a, it's all that we have. God's word is truth that causes us to live inside of his image and not our own, inside of his design and not our own. And so, friends, we must pray with Paul. That Restoration Church and all gospel-loving churches around the world would have an other-oriented love that is wedded to knowledge, the knowledge of God's Word, and not be wedded to love and whatever the cultural winds are saying love is so that we might be the salt and light to the world. right? Because we, we understand the gospel to be the better way, the good way. We want to show that to the world in sacrificial ways. But Paul has another qualification there. Not only love with knowledge, he prays that sacrificial love would so fill up with knowledge, and you'll see there, all discernment. Note he doesn't just say discernment. He says all discernment. Discernment here means understanding or perception, those kinds of things. Paul Paul understands that as sacrificial love fills up a church, the church is going to need the knowledge of God to know how to go and the discernment of God in order to approve what is excellent. 
Right? The more the Spirit of God makes us want to lay our lives down for the good of the undeserving, the more we're going to need truth and judgment in order to know where to go and what to do. Right? When we read this, we are compelled to lay our lives down for others when we understand the gospel, but we need some judgment. We need some truth to know where to go and how to do this. And so this is how we must pray. We must pray that agopic, sacrificial, other-oriented love of God would fill us up with knowledge of God's Word and all understanding so that we might approve what is excellent. What a saucy prayer, right? I mean, this is a saucy, excellent, risky, very, very exciting, adventurous kind of prayer, this prayer is. Very, very exciting. Now, I pray, guys, my, my prayer for us as a church would be that we together would pray this kind of prayer for not only this church, but all churches around the world. That we would be praying that God would fill us up. He would fill us up with a desire to spend ourselves for the good of others and others around the world. And pray that as that love comes up in us, it would come wedded to the knowledge of God, wedded to discernment, to know how best to spend it. Pray that we would have so much discernment that we as a church would know exactly where to lay our lives down. Pray that. Have you been praying that? Should we just pray that so we would more and more, more and more love comes up, more and more knowledge, more and more discernment. We would know exactly where to run and exactly how to run for the glories of God. I've already gotten us there a little bit, so let me go ahead and get to the second half of this and we'll finish on some application. See, the way that we grow for glory is by requesting the affections of agape, sacrificial love. Praying for the increase of that in us. Our heart, so that our hearts and our minds and our wills are all involved. And as we do, we will then be prepared for the second part, the actions of love. We have the affections of love and the fellowship of the church, and then the uh, actions of love. Now, we tend to think of love sort of as an emotion, don't we? That's how I often think about love. It's something more of an emotion. It's less something, it's less, less something we do. It's more something we feel. Right? But that's actually not the case. So gospel love, agape love, works more like a verb than it does like a noun. It's something more inclined as something that you do, less something you feel, although you should feel it. I don't want to get rid of emotions. They're in there. It's just more of an action than it is an adjective or a noun. And so that's what Paul is requesting in his prayers. He's praying that love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that, here it comes, you, church, may approve what is excellent. Excellent there, great rendering of the word. You could also use the word valuable so that you might approve, you might test what is most valuable. And then it goes on to say, and so be pure and blameless. Now, to be clear, guys, Paul does not mean the approving of what is excellent makes them pure and blameless. That's not what he's saying. He means that by their love, abounding to the point of action and choosing that which is excellent, they then prove themselves to be pure and blameless for a purpose. Look at the next words. For the day of Christ. You see that? Now, we've already talked about this already in verse 6. Paul is referencing, when he references the return of Christ, he's re- referencing this day when Christ will bring, uh, from, he will bring heaven down to earth. He's referencing the day that he will judge the living and the dead. Paul is praying that the presence of agape love would manifest itself in their making choices that are informed by God and therefore are excellent. Choices that are pure and blameless because God has made those choices pure and blameless. Choices that will prepare them, prepare us for the day of Christ. By the way, that's the orientation Paul wants him to have. Looking forward. Looking forward in hope and in confidence. 
Paul then continues to pile on the descriptors of approving what is excellent when he says that this outworking of being, that this is an outworking of being filled with the fruit of righteousness. So the proper approval of that which is excellent comes from having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. Properly choosing to lay their lives down in the situations that are most excellent so reveals that they are pure and blameless as well as it revealing that they are acting in keeping with the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness. And just in case, friends, that you are led to believe that this is something that the Philippians could employ or perform on their own, Paul makes clear where the filling of the fruit of righteousness comes from. Do you see it there? Look at verse 11. It comes through Jesus Christ. It doesn't come by their own ability in and of themselves to do it. It comes through Jesus Christ. Now, this should remind us of the teaching back in verse 6. That it is God who began the good work in them. God began it. God was going to sustain it as He fills them with the fruit of righteousness. And as He does so, He's going to do that through Jesus Christ, not through Nathan Knight, not through Jeremy Samani, not through Liz Strymer, through Jesus Christ, His strength, His power, through us as we make those decisions. And we were reminded, look back in verse 1, right? The church is the church because of the fact that they are saints in Christ Jesus. See, that simple phrase, friends, through Christ Jesus, that is absolutely critical in understanding the gospel. It is critical in understanding the Christian faith. See, if those three words are not functional in us, then we are not functioning as Christians. Jesus said that apart from Him, what? We can do nothing. Now, we'll do some stuff, but in the eyes of His kingdom, it's nothing. So no matter how much knowledge we try to fill ourselves with, no matter how much philosophical musings we might have, no matter how many times we've prayed the sinner's prayer or come to church, if we do not understand that being filled with the fruit of righteousness can only come through Jesus Christ, then friends, you do not understand what it means to be a Christian. Paul writes in Galatians 2.21 that if righteousness could be had apart from Christ performing the law for us, then Christ died for no reason. That's a really important thing to understand. What Paul is saying there is if we could do verses 9 to 11 on our own, apart from the work of Christ, or even by the work of the Spirit in us, if we can do that, then what Paul is saying is, is God wasted His Son by sacrificing. See, if you believe that Jesus only operates as a kind of steroid to give you the energy to perform your own righteousness, then it's very possible you don't understand the Gospel. You don't understand your need for Christ. See, friends, sin doesn't make us sick. Sin makes us dead. And so we need the Spirit to give us life entirely. And as He does, we then can make those decisions to then walk in keeping with Christ. So every good thing that we have, guys, every single thing, everything comes through Jesus Christ. Our salvation comes through Jesus Christ and our sanctification comes through Jesus Christ. So the saving and the sanctifying, we are saved not only by grace through faith in Christ, we are also sanctified by grace through faith in Christ. It's all being worked in us to the common goal of praise and glory to God. So it's all of grace from beginning to end. We are nothing but needy beggars, nothing but needy beggars that see 100% of their need in Christ. And so Christ's love then stoops and He finds us and He clothes us with the robes of redemption as He accomplished it for us on the cross and in the resurrection. 
And so, beloved, when I use that word action of love, we as Christians understand that not only has God begun a good work in us, but he is also actively working in us through Jesus Christ. We are all aware, right, that we cannot perform this kind of love in our own strength. Not consistently. It must come through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit of Christ. Our dependence, thankfully, friends, is on the Spirit. Right? If you and I had to wake up every single day and think about agape love that we need to perform, you and I would probably just not get out of bed. Right? I wouldn't. But how good and glorious it is to know that our hope is not in ourselves, but it is in Christ and His Spirit working through us. That gives us confidence to so obey and live out this sacrificial love. Amen. Now, if Paul's prayer, this is, by the way, I should mention right about here is where we begin getting close to the application. My introduction should start to be weighing on your hearts and minds at this point. See, if Paul's prayer became a reality for the saints at Grace Church Philippi, it would be seen by that church making sacrificial choices for the good of others, no matter whether they are deserving or not, no matter whether they are rejected or not. That's how he would know that this prayer is actually coming to fruition. Sacrificial choices happening in the life of the church. And by the way, not just sacrificial choices for the good of others and the glory of God happening every once in a while. We would see, we would know that those things would be happening regularly. It would be a lifestyle. It would be a lifestyle. We would know that his prayer has been answered in. So they would be marked by this as a community. They would be marked by this kind of lifestyle. And so right now, if you're beginning to understand the difficulty of this kind of love, you might be beginning to understand the gospel and the love of God. If you see the difficulty of of living out agape love that has knowledge and all discernment to the point of making excellent choices. If you're beginning to understand that it is difficult, you might begin to understand the love of God. But at the Same time, though, friend, if you understand it only to be difficult, you may not understand it at all. Why do I say that? See, this gospel love, this agape love that makes excellent choices for the good of the glory of God, for the good of our neighbors, it's not just difficult, it's impossible. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible to live as a regular lifestyle in this way. So now, do you see now where we are beginning to understand that the most miraculous and supernatural element of the church is not the manifestation of certain gifts. It's the presence of agape love in the fellowship of believers. That, if you see that happening, you have to know that this is the greatest, most supernatural thing happening because apart from God working it in us, we could not do it. And remember, God is love. And so if love, this agape love is happening, we would know God's at work. None of us, apart from Christ, would choose to orient our lives toward God and neighbor in sacrificial ways unless God was birthing it in us. And doesn't this begin to make sense now, beloved? When Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Isn't it beginning to make more sense? By the way you agape one another. See, if we mimic the sacrificial love of the gospel to one another and those around us, the world will have nothing to do but to conclude God must be real, His Son must be Jesus Christ, and the only hope for change is found in Him. And that's why Paul prays that that love come to be more operational in the life of that church. 
And guys, that's why we need to pray that it would be more operational in us as a church. I have to tell you guys, this was one of the most difficult weeks for me in terms of prepping for this sermon. Because when I read this passage and begin to understand this agape love with knowledge, all discernment that would approve what is excellent for the glory of God, the more I begin to understand that, the more I begin to wonder how operational it was in my own life. That was hard. It was hard, very convicting, this passage is. Sounds good on the surface, but when you actually start diving into the teaching of it, you start to evaluate your life and you're like, my goodness, is this happening in my life? This is hard. This kind of love, this kind of lifestyle. The more I began to understand what Paul was praying here, the less I feel like it was sort of operational in my own life. Now listen, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. The good news is, I know where to go to be made full. And so do you. We know where to go that God would fill us up with high-octane, glorious gas, right? For the glory of God that it would be more operational in us. So beloved, some of us need to repent of our idolatry of efficient love. Some of us need to repent of our idolatry of efficiency in loving. See, we live in a world that is increasingly trying to accommodate us more and more. We find ourselves living in a time that is attempting to take away as many friction points as possible. And the promise is in that the less friction we have, the more convenient things will be. The more convenient things will be, the more easier things will be. The more easier things will be, the better they'll be. And the more better they'll be, the more joy we will have. Church, that's a lie from Satan. That's a direct lie from the pits of hell. And it's tearing the world apart. The definition of efficiency, just listen to this definition. The definition of efficiency is achieving maximum productivity with minimum wasteful effort. Maximum reward for as little effort as possible. Have you ever read a sentence that is more opposed to the gospel in all of your life? That is directly, that sentence is directly opposed to the gospel. I am all, friends, I want you to know, I'm all for efficiency, all for it but I am not for efficient love. I can't be. I'm a Christian. I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The God who is love defines love in the very opposite terms of efficiency. The direct opposite of efficiency. Jesus did not achieve the maximum reward of the glory of God and the good of our salvation by a little wasted effort. He gave His life for a bunch of enemies like me and like you. That is not efficient. It is costly of the highest order, but it is the greatest love. It is the definition of love. A horrific death. A death for us, beloved. And so what makes us think that we can have efficient love today? If that's the definition of love, that's how we came to know love. What makes us think that we can have efficient love today? What makes us think that we can have a spouse, a job, a church, a family, a life whose joy comes to us efficiently when the definition of love is inefficient? For some of us, our expectation for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness has got to change. We have got to learn to be more discerning, Paul's prayer, as to whether or not our expectations are conforming more to the patterns of this world 
or our expectations for love are conforming more to the patterns of the world to come? Which one is it? See, friends, we live in an age of Amazon.com that gives you virtually anything you want. Anything you want. And they will deliver it to your doorstep in two days or less. We live in an age of Netflix. I'm not opposed to these things. I have Netflix. But we live, you live in an age of Netflix, right? Where you can pay 10 bucks a month or whatever it is, and you can watch whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. We live in an age of smartphones that have more functionality at your fingertips than the entire Allied army had in World War II, sitting in your pocket. We live in a day where every thought can be broadcast to the world at no cost to us as we sit at home in our pajamas doing nothing. We live in a time where Facebook is subtly informing us that to be a friend is accepting a request and saying happy birthday. We live in a world that is increasingly trying to accommodate any lifestyle that you choose for yourself as long as you don't say no to someone else. We live in a world that is attempting to remove as many barriers and impositions as possible because it believes barriers and impositions are blockades to love. We are led to believe that convenience is the pathway to pleasure. We're led to believe that personal preferences and customizable kinds of lives are the pathway to pleasure. More and more, the world is trying to convince us that efficient love is effective love, and it's not. It's not. It's never been that way, and it never will be that way. True love that leads to everlasting joy has never been convenient. Never It's never been that way. People all over the world, friends, are hopping from job to job, city to city, relationship to a relationship in order to try to find this love, and they're dying. So church family, the more and more we believe the lie that abounding love that comes with truth in the form of personal freedom if we, more, we believe that we sacrifice in the truth and we conform our lives more to personal freedom, very little cost to us, if we do that, the more we run for the gospel and the more we run from the God of the gospel. And the more you do that, the further and further away you run from everlasting joy and everlasting love. Efficient love is dangerous, friends, because it gives us just enough to believe that if we keep following the path of ease, of greater convenience without the truth, then we are going to eventually get home to the good life. If we could just get things more and more convenient, eventually less and less of that truth stuff and discernment, eventually if we just keep walking that path, we're going to eventually get the lives that we want for ourselves, a life of ease, a life of convenience, a life of heaven on earth. That's a lie. It's not true. never has been. If we just keep walking down this road, we think that we can get maximum reward with little cost to ourselves. But friends, we will never get there. That lifestyle will never get home to true love and everlasting joy because from the dawn of time, life-giving love has always come in the same way. By it coming with knowledge and discernment at a cost to personal preferences for the good of others. That's not efficient, but it is awesome. Listen to this author, listen to this line by author Bruce Milne. 
He says, true fellowship with our brother is bought with the same price which bought us fellowship with the Lord. The price of pain. You cannot have true fellowship on the cheap. It's not available at some bargain counter of the Spirit. A fellowship that costs nothing is almost invariably worth nothing. A fellowship that costs nothing is almost invariably worth nothing. Unquote. Do you want life? Do you want satisfaction? Do you want a healthy marriage? Do you want a life-giving job? A life-giving family? Do you want a life-giving church? Do you want friendships and other relationships that are deep and abiding? Life-changing kinds. I suppose what I'm asking, guys, is do you want love? Well, then heed the words of Christ who defined love when He said this. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. Love your enemies, He says. Do good to them. Lend them without expecting back. The words of Paul. Love is patient. Love is kind. This is agape love. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. There we should hear the knowledge and the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love what? Y'all know the rest. Never fails. Love never fails. Agape love never fails. Love did not fail in Christ on Calvary. That love, the love of God in Christ Jesus, that love that is filled with the knowledge of the gospel, that love, it wins every single time. Never fails. There is no other kind of love that does. All those other kinds of love eventually fall down. This one, agape love, never fails. There are plenty of other kinds of love, as I reference. Loves that may appear even to win, as it were, for a time. But the love of God in Christ Jesus that is coupled with knowledge and all discernment is the only one that we can say with confidence never fails. And so, friends, do you want to see the supernatural elements of the church? Do you want to see them? Or be willing to regularly pay the cost of pain and inconvenience out of a desire to see God glorified in us as we work through Jesus Christ for others. Then you'll see it. Now that may mean a number of things. That may mean that you may need to pay the cost of sleep and get up regularly an hour earlier to spend time with God in prayer and studying of God's Word and enjoying it. So you might pray for the church, for your family, for your job, for the world, whatever. It may cost that. That may mean some of you may need to stop loving your spouses with that erotic kind of love that seeks to get something out of them instead of loving them with the agopic love that doesn't seek its own, all the while knowing you might be rejected for it. That may mean some of you need to share the gospel with your neighbors, with your family members, with your co-workers. And in doing so, that may mean you know you're willing to pay the cost, the inconveniences of losing your job or even maybe even sacrificing that relationship or your own reputation. For some of you, that may mean you need to pay the cost of crucifying personal preferences toward the church in favor of serving the church and finding more joy in the unity that we have in Christ instead of your personal preferences. 
Still others may need to begin to move closer into the fellowship of the church entirely. You're giving up your personal time and your personal freedom in your own schedule to kind of do as you please and using the church. Instead, you might need to be the ones that pay the personal cost of sacrificing those things to get further into the fellowship of the body that you might be known and you might make yourself known to others to encourage them, to love them. And some of you may be here and you might be understanding love for the very first time. You might be sitting here going, that's what the gospel is. I thought all I had to do was just pray some prayer. I thought all I had to do was just add some Jesus in my life and I'm good. I get a ticket to heaven. And now you're understanding, no, it doesn't work that way at all. You're beginning to understand that love is costly, costly to yourself. You're beginning to understand that you have to lay your whole life down in order to follow Jesus and receive a better love, a bigger love. If that's you, please talk to somebody about that, about what it means to really live inside of the love of Christ and be born again to a new and living hope. And still some of you others, the others, you're not quite sure what this means for you. You're living in a time in your life when you're quite not, not quite sure what decision needs to be made, what excellent choice needs to be made. Well, can I encourage you? Take a look at that prayer again in verses 9 to 11. That's exactly what he's praying for. Discernment with knowledge and love in order that you might make a pure and blameless choice. Just pray that. And talk to somebody. I'm going to be right there after service. Come talk to me about it. We'll pray together and see what kind of decision needs to be made in your life. But then there are others of you. There are others of you that need to be refreshed at the realization that God is supernaturally working His love in your life through your giving yourself sacrificially to others. Some of you need to be not corrected but encouraged that God is at work in your life. And as you understand this, you then look at it and go, uh, wait a minute, if Nathan's right, in the Bible, what he's explaining is right, then that what I did and have been doing wasn't me. God was doing it through me in the work of Christ. Yeah, isn't that great? God is supernaturally working in your life. Be encouraged. Which leads me to the final thing that I want to say. I want to join in the thanksgiving of Paul here. That's what he's doing in this passage. Join in the thanksgiving of Paul to the church by talking about the apparent supernatural love that is in that church. And I think I would even say in us here at this church. See, friends, Paul prays with the affection of Christ that love would abound more and more in them. In other words, did you notice it was already apparent that Grace Church Philippi had love. It was already there. He's just praying for more to come. The same, friends, I believe is true for us. There is gospel love happening in this little fellowship of the saints. And it is encouraging. There is unity here. Like I said at the beginning, the most amazing supernatural elements of God oftentimes happen in the life of this church, but we oftentimes don't see them or make sense of them and actually see that they're actually incredibly supernatural and deep in the heart of God. We might be led to believe that if we saw something, you know, something more supernatural, we might be led to believe that that really affirms the ministry of Restoration Church when in fact, if you see sacrificial God-saturated love towards others and neighbors, that is even better. Be encouraged. These things are happening. So like Philippi, just let me give you a little list here. Just to skip a rock across this. Like at Philippi, that trained up leaders sent them off to encourage workers and the saints that are out there spreading the gospel. That's happened here. We've trained workers up. We've encouraged them and we've sent them out and they've made costly choices to lay down their lives to go to other nations for the good of the gospel. That's happened here in the life of this church. 
You heard Joey pray for it in, this, in the pastoral prayer. We have people in this church that are sacrificially loving others by adopting children. Just think about that. They're taking children into their home and they're going to raise them and they've never even met them before. And they're doing it out of a motive of gospel-oriented love. That's happening in the life of this church. There are others that are even single caring for children in a foster system. That's happening here. Many of you have given of your finances in very sacrificial, costly ways to you in order that the gospel would advance. That's happened here in the life of this church. I think about Michael Davis and the others that have gathered sacrificially. They wake up early on a Sunday morning and they come and pray. They come and pray, just like what Paul's doing right here. They pray. They're waking up early. Just think about that. There's three to six people. I'd love for it to be more. Three to six people when Titus 2 is not happening, they wake up early and just pray for the nations. That is evidence of God's grace. Evidence of His love in the life of this church. I think about the Malero family who left their home country from Venezuela that is a very difficult time. And they came up here to love a people they've never met. But that, by the way, that includes you and the people they're going to minister to. They came up here, sacrificed their lives and their love, and they made a costly choice by trying to begin a church and a place that's going to be a very hard ministry. I could go on and on. I didn't even mention the countless times of grace and love that is happening to you guys over and over and over again. Ones that I'm not even aware of. And I don't need to be aware of. You're loving each other like this. A love is abounding. May it abound all the more. And as it does, may the watching world look around us and say, God is real. His Son is Jesus. And the Spirit is at work. And I want more of that. I want to know more about that. And so, guys, let's pray this prayer. Verses 9 to 11, even 8 down to 11. I would encourage you to pray this prayer and think about it and ask the Lord to so move in us that we might have the same kind of love. Love that is not conforming to the patterns of this world, but is being transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we might test and approve what God's will is, His good, perfect, and pleasing will, Romans 12. And as we do that, we will then know that we are the disciples of Jesus Christ because that's the call mark, the calling card that Jesus said would be for the church. But, friends, you should know, many of you already know this, it's going to be costly. You're going to be inconvenienced. You're going to be called to do things and ask things uh, and go about things in ways that will inconvenience you. And as you do those things regularly, be encouraged. God is at work in us and in you. And He will sustain us. And guess what? He will get us home to the day of Christ. And that's the day we look forward to. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our desire of erotic love, self-oriented kinds of love, convenient love. Birth in us a love, agape love. May it abound in us more and more with the knowledge of Your Word with not just some discernment, but with all discernment, God. In order that we would approve that which is excellent, that which is valuable. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And that is the day we hope for. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through, hallelujah, through Jesus Christ to your praise and your glory, not our own. Oh God, do this. Do this in us. Thank you for the ways you already have been doing it and make it happen all the more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.